Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us on Friday mornings for the weekly update here at JM and the AM. Mr. Honline, a Shana Tova, a happy, healthy, and sweet new year, and welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Hope the year and, got uh, off to a good year. Yeah, hope the year got off to a good start. Uh, so far, Baruch Hashem, yes. Some places it didn't get off to the best start because we keep hearing about these anti-Semitic episodes, some of which did take place over um, Rosh Hashanah, uh, whether it be Rutgers or uh, Michigan or American University, and there are others that are being cited. Uh, one of the most disturbing ones might be this development at Berkeley where there's now, quote-unquote, a Jewish free zone. I think the real intent was to make sure that no pro-Israel or pro-Zionist speakers ever come back to the campus. What do you think of this atmosphere that we are learning about and a lot of people are now paying attention about uh, regarding anti-Semitism and what's happening on the college campuses? Well, I think it's fair to say that we've been warning about it for a very long time and giving um, often reports on these weekly updates. And I know people tend to believe in, and often you know, comment when they hear the reports that they don't like that this is all depressing. This is reality today. And it's true on campuses across the country. You see the government, the federal government's acting against the University of Vermont. We see other universities, CUNY, coming under severe criticism. And now they've undertaken a new initiative with Hillel to, to address the Jewish students' uh, needs. But the, the number of places, and even in big cities, Columbia, NYU, everyone, is today coming under increased uh, focus Unfortunately, not enough action, and mostly not by the administrations of uh, the universities who don't act until there's real pressure, which is why the lawsuits are so important and the other actions by alumni, by donors, by parents. To leave the onus on the students is unfair because they, they have to live with this every day. They you know, get uh, put under special scrutiny and pressure. So the, it really has, there has to be outside support. This is a, a growing trend. It's across the country. It's around the world, actually. Uh, and you see that half of college students, they say, support BDS in the latest study that was just done. I doubt that most of them could define it, but they still express support for it. And I think the campuses are becoming increasingly hostile places uh, for Jewish students, for pro-Israel students of any kind. And we have to really offset that. And that means taking more action, getting legislators to do stuff like the hearing they had at the city council, uh, which uh, the president didn't even show up. But, they, but there are many other initiatives. The application of Title VI on the federal level is a very important tool. And and also getting universities and others to adopt the IRA definition, but not just in word, but in deed. Uh, when uh, buildings are uh, vandalized and you know, are noticeably, you know, Jewish institutional buildings are targeted, uh, eggs, rocks, etc. Okay, those are, those are anti-Semitic episodes that you know, in in our history, we have uh, figured out how to deal with, and we hope that whatever, however we react, is certainly effective. The Berkeley piece, I don't know if it's more disturbing, if it's different, I don't know how you'd classify it, uh, but it's just a. Uh, not only are you facing, you know, organized anti-Semitism, organized anti-Zionism, and organized anti-Israel on a very prominent college campus, but one of the professors, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I can't find.
find it now, but I know I saw this. One of the professors said, "If you are if you are organizing a group like this to you know keep pro-Israel people off of campus, a good number of professors wouldn't be able to speak on their own campus, and a good number of students who are pro-Israel because one should not think everyone at Berkeley is uh, anti-Israel uh, would also not be able to express their point of view." Uh, do you? What's your comment about the absurdity of all that? Well, the very fact that they can change the bylaws, students, uh, uh, nine different law student uh, groups amended the bylaws to ensure that they won't, uh, will never invite any speakers that support Israel or Zionism. And to see the, the nature of the, the response, uh, some of the people, some people who attended the uh, University of California, Berkeley School of Law, I know have responded to it. But it's uh, it's reflective of a much broader trend, and the the fact is that uh, we are seeing more complaints these days from faculty members than from students about the anti-Semitism they're encountering, and this is uh, this doesn't get much attention. But you know we've had the case at um, here in Kingsboro, you've had cases at CUNY, you have cases in yeah. other universities, you had the 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 teachers union. And, and hundreds of people had to resign from it because of their anti-Israel, anti, what we believe, anti-Semitic um, uh, positions. And it's it's um, and the man you were talking about, who's the the dean, who sees himself as a progressive Zionist, I think he said, uh, would be banned under this standard. And and so would ninety percent of the Jewish students, he said. A Berkeley graduate said to me, "Berkeley's different. Berkeley's more extreme. You never know what you're going to get from Berkeley." But from what you're saying, this is not isolated at Berkeley. This is you know in too many places around the country. Uh, plus, we have to discuss for a moment the anti-Semitism now that's coming out of Russia, where people and media are questioning the patriotism of Jews uh, in the Russian-Ukraine battle. Uh, where uh, where prominent Jews are being cited with uh, siding with the Ukraine. I know that it's a lose-lose situation, right? No matter what, uh, if Jews want, are going to be targeted, they'll find a reason, whether it's on this side, pro-Ukraine or pro-Russia, they're going to find a reason. But it, it, it ha- we have to pay attention to the fact that this whole, uh, that this war, that this whole um, uh, conflict is causing an increase in anti-Semitism publicly in the media. Berkeley, it's true, is has always been a radical hub and uh, from going back 50 years uh, and but but if we see what happened at the university state university of new york at new paltz where they drove two sexual assault victims out of the survival group for being zionists or university of southern california they drove out the uh, one of the, the jewish student uh, government vice president um because of uh, her i won't, won't use the word but impeach her zionist blank and at Tufts, we saw, and that's talking about recent cases, but these are happening every day across the country. And it is indeed shaping the next generation. And it, we can't say that it's just the student success. It's not. These are organized efforts. These are uh, often with state sponsorship, uh, in meaning foreign governments have gotten involved in promoting and, and promulgating anti-Semitism. Uh, and some of this is organized. It, it doesn't just happen. And we, we are seeing it becoming increasingly accepted, and that's the danger. It's it's not just the acts themselves, but the tolerance of the acts, and we keep raising the bar on what is acceptable. We have to say no, no more. We, we just have to have a blanket rule, and that's why the higher definition is important, and others, because it gives you a standard to measure it by. 
And the Russia piece? Oh, so Russia, that is disturbing uh, because it creates a hostile atmosphere. And they're, of course, looking for scapegoats for to explain the failure of the their war effort. I don't think that this is coming from Putin. At least there's no evidence yet uh, from the, the information that I've gotten that it, that Putin is behind it. But, you know, the, a lot of the media has traditionally been anti-Semitic in Russia, and it's certainly being manifested now and, and uh, with commentators and reporters making anti-Semitic assigns. By the way, it was an editorial in the Jerusalem Post about uh, about King Abdullah to stop spreading blood libels. What happened in that speech at the United Nations? That he made a reference to, to Christians being um, denied their rights or persecuted in Israel. I don't know what's come over him or why he adopted this thing. It's a, it's a dangerous position because it legitimizes that violence and um you know, it, 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 it uh, invites reaction and countermeasures, and it's just simply not true. It is true that in most of the Arab world, Christians can't function. It's not true in Israel. And for him to get up in front of the United Nations and make this kind of libelous attack in his speeches of late, uh, we've seen it, uh, a pattern of this is very surprising because he sits in his seat for one reason, and that's because Israel protects him. And, and you know, he has internal problems and trying to deflect attention. No, it's, again, making excuses for something that is not tolerable and should be held to account. And I, I regret that the United States didn't walk out on that, didn't walk out when very easy spoke and made uh, anti-Semitic references, uh, certainly right before he held a press conference in which he said, well, the, the Holocaust, there's evidence that the Holocaust, something occurred, but we need much more research. And uh, only the Israeli ambassador walked out of the UN when he spoke. Hmm. And we send the wrong message by that. Interesting. Um, while we're on the topic of world leaders, the new Saudi prime minister, what could you tell us about the uh, crown prince? Uh, I've met him several times here and in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's very smart, shrewd. He's, he's been in charge anyway, just getting the titles now. Um, and his brother, whom I knew also, uh, one was for a short while the ambassador in Washington, uh, also very smart. And um, I think both of them see a future in relationships with Israel. They haven't, you know, not ready to bite the bullet on diplomatic relations, but more important is the kind of exchanges, cooperation, the stance against Iran, the um, uh, and against other forces in the region. And so I don't think that it, it will reflect any change in policy. It's just another step towards the succession, in the succession process. You'll take the status quo and the direction they're going in and not worry about the Abraham Accords and them actually joining that type of uh, treaty. I think they will flirt with it, but I think they, they, uh, I mean, they say they need a solution to the Palestinian problem. Uh, I think his father, the king, the elderly king, um, is opposed to it. I think he is much, uh, he is much more responsive to it and certainly to cooperation. So we'll see once he, if, if and when he consolidates power, that will, then we'll see. And uh, what can you tell us about the new leader and leadership, some of which is uh, being looked on with skepticism around the world in Italy? So it's reflective of the general trends that we've talked about for a long time. And I keep saying that Europe is, a, and especially England, a laboratory for the United States. By the way, the positive news um, 
is that the British Labour Party held their annual conference and not one branch introduced an anti-Israel resolution. Whereas remember, there used to be the onslaught under Corbyn where they would be waving Palestinian flags and they would hold these demonstrations against Israel. This time, none. So it shows that Sturmer has actually brought about a change in in the Labour Party, how deep it is, I guess we'll know with time. But um, the, what happened in Italy is reflective of what's happening in much of Europe, uh, where the where they're moving more and more to the extreme left or extreme right, mostly to the right. And she certainly is reflective of that. There are Israelis who have connections with her who speak highly. There are others who are more skeptical. Um, I guess we'll, we'll know once the government is formed and see who's in it and what the policies will be. Um, where am I here? Uh, did Russia, in fact, annex Ukrainian territory? Well, today is supposed to be the day to announce it. I haven't seen yet that they have, but they did a referendum in four areas, and they're using that as and, uh, and the outcome was that the people voted to be part of Russia. Of course, you know, a free election yeah. by no standard. Um, but um, it, it will be a very provocative move if uh, if he proceeds with it and seen as such by the West, and that will evoke again more sanctions. And uh, I assume it will, I mean, what will it do with the Ukrainians? I mean, will they step up their military effort, or that just depends on what Russia does in the aftermath of the uh, of the annexation? No, they, they're, they're stepped up, I think, as much as they can be. They're expanding their efforts uh, all the time. Uh, you know, there were reports that uh, they, there were missiles that targeted Uman. Uh, I haven't seen any confirmation of it, although there were public statements to that effect and that they were intercepted. Um, but um, pretty amazing. You know, the, the Ukrainian reaction is going to be determined by their capacity. Pretty amazing, Hara, that Uman went well with the tens of thousands that were there, right? It's really remarkable. Again, I don't know that it was wise, but they were protected clearly. So I guess they, and I, they, I think still many are there for Yom Kippur as well. Did Zelensky go to Bobby Yar commemorations before this year? Uh, I was there this year with him when he went, went last October, but it was the uh, it was special anniversary year. Uh, I don't know that he attended in previous years. Oh, I, so I attended the 70th anniversary. No, my, not there. No, my point is that he was there this week, and you're telling me that before the war last year he was there as well. Like I was last October, I, yes. Hey, I was wondering just if it was a uh, you know an overture to Israel or an overture to the Jewish community no. in general. But uh, he's been there before, as you say. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Round the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app, Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Uh, weekly update schedule. We will update you as we go along each week because Malcolm will be in the Holy Land, please God, uh, for Yuntif coming up. Um, so we'll go through the uh, the schedule and then get back onto a regular schedule, please God. After uh, Sukkis, uh, Malcolm, a word, uh, it, it would be wrong of us, frankly, to have this conversation, not acknowledge uh, both the pain and suffering that's going on down in Florida and other parts of the East Coast. Obviously, some of the Jewish communities hit, but obviously 
plenty of general communities hit as well that we're concerned about. And in addition to that, uh, the rescue efforts uh, that are being undertaken by members of our community, in addition, of course, to everybody else uh, in the rescue industry, uh, that that's happening. And, uh, uh, you know, frankly, when you see the videos and you see all the reports, a big Kiddush Hashem in that area. But I think we just need to acknowledge the pain and suffering that's going on down there at this point. And we don't even know yet the true extent and the facts because areas are not accessible. And uh, I've heard various reports that the, the numbers of those who, who may have drowned or are still missing is much greater than, than we know or realize. Uh, so we should certainly keep them in our tefillahs. And, and um, I hope that uh, that we will see that the, the waters recede and as the storm moves out. Uh, coming to New York, but I, I don't think we'll have any kind of catastrophic impact. Yeah. Uh, but it did in in uh, Florida and such. When you see the films of it, it's really devastating. Yeah, the destruction is immense. And a, again, a reminder, very important reminder for this time of year of who runs the world, uh, to say the least. Uh, the Iranian um, protests that are going on, um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you saw this yet. I, I saw it online this morning. There's an analysis in the New York Times about whether protests are both as attractive and as effective as they were years ago. And I was thinking back to, you know, how different it is uh, when I was growing up. There were so many protests and demonstrations, and it seems so few and far between now for this generation. But anyway, uh, are they effective now in Iran? The reaction to the uh, uh, the woman in the hijab case um, uh, 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 being killed by authorities and the subsequent uh, riots and demonstrations, are they being effective this time around? I think they could be extremely effective. I think they are effective. And the question is whether the West gets behind the demonstrators, supports them with communications equipment, with public statements, with whatever else they need, with money. Uh, Just a moment. I apologize, Malcolm. One second. Just a moment. Just a moment. There we go. Malcolm, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Continue, please. Uh, yesterday, there were demonstrations in 307 cities, but in 1,800 different points. Uh, and that's important because they don't have the coverage for the Basijis and the others to go out and, and to fight. They are mobilizing. They try to mobilize certain special forces who refused to go in and, and take on the demonstrators. There are reports that the army may come out against it. I don't believe that's true. But you see the... the, the uh, the amount, how effective it is that the government and the Tehran Times published a front page story that blaming Germany for this and Europe and saying that this is uh, instigated and what the German embassy played a role and had contact with the Amini family or criminals and, and all sorts of other explanations. And of course, blaming Israel and the Zionists uh, for, for what's happening. So th- they are desperate. They don't have a handle on it. And they're trying to keep the conflict, you know, they, they always try to keep everything under control, both along their borders and within the country. They want to fight in Hezbollah, they want to fight with Hamas in, in Gaza, anywhere else, even confronting Israel, but not on their own borders. When it comes now to the domestic um, uh, situation, uh, and you see the, the extent of these demonstrations are really remarkable, and and many people have been killed. Uh, the people in Iran that I speak to tell me numbers that are really uh, quite disturbing, and, and uh, you're going to see boycotts against banks controlled by the supreme leader. You'll see other efforts um, 
to uh, to um, counter the government's initiative, although there's very little from the outside. This is all has to be done primarily from the inside, except the additional sanctions. You see the, the U.S. downed an Iranian drone that was on its way to Erbil, to supposedly to where U.S. forces uh, are located. And the, the, um, the number of places where Iran is manufacturing now in Syria was also revealed as very disturbing, at least 10 places in and around the Syrian research center, because Israel's ability to stop and block a lot of the flights that were coming in. So now they're assembling and upgrading the weapons in both Lebanon with Hezbollah and in the, with their militias in Syria. So they, they are desperately seeking alternative ways because there have been effective measures against them. The problem we face is that once again, the West is not coming out, mobilizing, expressing support as they would in many other countries. And the uh, Iranians really believe that they can control it. And ultimately they can, but it will be at a very heavy price. And all of this adds to the resentment against the government. The economic conditions are terrible, which feeds it. The uh, school teachers went on strike. The oil workers are today considering are, are going to vote on going on strike. But they said that if the people who were arrested aren't released, and you're talking about thousands who have been arrested, uh, that they would strike, which means you cut off the source of income if the oil workers aren't aren't there. Uh, the truck drivers who have been on, in, in, on strikes in the past are also now moving towards a, a strike. But the very fact that you have in the domestic sector so many people taking to the streets, and especially young people, a lot of the demonstrators are in their 20s. Yeah. And this is a strong statement. And they are arresting celebrities who are supporting the protests as well, people who are well-known yeah. in Iran. I, uh, how do you judge success? I mean, it's it's 40-plus years of not being able to overturn these types of tyrannical governments in Iran. And it seems, you know, when you're on this side of the world, that, that, that it seems like that's the only way to judge success is if they can, you know, change regimes. But it's never going to happen, at least not in the near future. So one of the measures is to see who will join the government, support the government in actions against the people. Will the army, will the Basij, we know that the Basij, who are these roving gangs, uh, organized, obviously, um, um, they move them from town to town because the, the, the people tell them, we know where you live, we know who you are, and they start demonstrating outside their parents' home or their family homes, and they... Uh, feel threatened, so they move them to other towns where they won't be recognized. And uh, again, the reports that a lot of forces refuse to to cooperate, that some even join the demonstrations. A lot of this has to be, you know, is in the fog of war right now, and we have to see. But more and more people are becoming martyrs. And there's this one woman, Hadas Najafi, who was in her 20s, was shot six times by the police, killed because uh, she took off her scarf in a Tehran suburb. Uh, in Karaj, uh, and now that became a big social media uh, focus and reactivated, re-energized the, the people in the demonstrations. And if you look at it, you see that uh, the government is sending gangs down to counter the demonstrators and to to beat up some, and to but they are often overwhelmed by the crowds themselves. So Iran, this doesn't deter Iran from its negative and hostile activities. We see them still supporting and, and working with all the terrorists, but this is a major threat today from the inside. They did not move quickly enough in the beginning, I think, and now they have uh, something which I'm not sure that this genie can be put back in the bottle. It started in the Kurdish areas you know, where the woman was killed, but it is no longer uh, in any way isolated to one sector. 
Um, well, they know how important technology and social media is this entire effort. Are they successful at all in blocking it? And blocking the, they try, but uh, they've overcome, and um, uh, Musk, in this case, did something good, giving him uh, access, and we, um, the United States gave some licenses, I think, for companies to be able to provide um, to the people internet connections, but they seem to, to be able to get around it. They still communicate, and they're still sending messages out, so the, whatever the government is doing, and they are clamping down and try to shut off the internet, except the government officials. Now they've started even cutting them. Um, it, they seem to be able to get around it. Few people know about the um, uh, the uh, benefits of protest and demonstration as much as you do. Max Fisher, this is what I was alluding to earlier, writes: Mass protests, once a grave threat to even the fiercest autocrat have plummeted in effectiveness, a study shows. Factors appear to include polarization, social media, and rising nationalist attitudes. Your reaction? It's true. First of all, I think the bigger problem is indifference and the apathy of people and the unwillingness uh, to take to the streets in support of the causes, whether it's local causes, whether it's um, reapportionment or the threats against the schools or the so many other policies that hit people directly in their pocketbook, in their communities, their security. Uh, uh, we see that, that people are increasingly complacent, which means that they will pay a heavier and heavier price, and it's harder to catch up once you do it. The demonstrations still do work in terms of getting public attention. The problem is that the people want to do it by sending a, a, a SMS message or whatever on the Internet or send out a tweet. It's important. The, the Internet is the highway. It can be a highway for hate and a, a super highway for hate today, yeah. but it's also a highway for communications and, and can be a mobilizing uh, vehicle as it was in the Egyptian demonstrations a few years ago. But the, the, um, the question is, are people ready, and especially young people, ready to respond like the young people in Iran are and go into the street? It's risky for them. And, you know, they put their lives on the line with it. But they're courageous uh, and and very committed. Do anti caparus demonstrations work? <laughs> Only by the chickens. I'll tell you, it's uh, whatever. I got to be. Chickens would unify and have a union. They could fight this. Well, there are people fighting for them. I know. I'd love to see people fight for you know, for the for the safety and security of human beings. Um, yes, and if the New York Times would would try to create more balance and it continues its efforts and its investigations, uh, focusing only on one community. It's really disgraceful. Speaking of the New York Times, they painted this um, a U.S. decision uh, to penalize the Chinese companies who are storing Iran oil uh, as an indication that the Iran deal is dead. you agree with that? No, I do not. I think the Iran deal is put off until after the November elections. This is what Iranians are saying and some Americans. I think right now there are major stumbling blocks. This week, the um, head of the Iranian Atomic Energy Agency spoke before the International Atomic Energy Agency and then had a meeting with uh, Grassi, the head of it, and said that the negotiations or discussions have been resumed. And uh, Iran needs the deal, I mean, for a lot of its own purposes. And if the, the Russians okay it and approve them moving ahead, I think the United States government is still committed to it. It's it's a bad deal. It's not a longer and stronger. It's a weaker and shorter. And the idea of providing them with $100 billion a year, I mean, it's just 
outrageous. There should be more sanctions, not less. And the idea that the IHC companies would be removed from the sanctions list, which negates whether or not you take the IHC itself off. Uh, I think that there is still a desire to have a deal. I think that they make people more complacent thinking that nothing's happening. I believe all the time there are still exchanges and things going on um, that should be of concern. Yeah, that's an understatement. Uh, latest poll, the Netanyahu Likud block 59 seats. It's funny, you predicted this because when I was I was talking about the low 60s, you said, you know, the, the, even though it looks like momentum, things tend to, you know, shift pretty quickly. And now, you know, he's down to uh, where his coalition would not get the required 61 seats. Any other election updates? Well, the opposition also doesn't have 61 seats, right. and I think that um, he went down a little bit, and some people attributed it to his U.N. speech. I just think it's the nature of Israeli politics that you have the flavor of the day. Uh, right now, it's Ben Gvir is getting the attention, right. but I don't believe that uh, he will get all the votes that they, you know, people tend to, to express support as a protest, and yet when they go into the polling booths, people tend to vote more uh, responsibly or effectively, which I think, you know, in terms of who will govern. And uh, so I think it's a, it's very much in flux. It's it's a very short time. It's a, just a few weeks, a month, uh, November 1st. So, and with the Chagim taking yeah. away the next two weeks, that means the whole campaign is going to be over two weeks. But it, there's no unknown quantities this time. It's not that people don't know the candidates and know what they stand for. So, the length of time may be a, a blessing that uh, people don't have to watch 200 commercials uh, supporting each of the oh, candidates. Oh, there'll be 200 in those two weeks. I can guarantee <laughs> you that. Once Israelis wake up on the morning after Shemini Atzeres, that would be Tuesday morning, the 18th of October, literally two weeks later, November 1 on that Tuesday is the election in Israel. Wow. Uh, right. Pretty exciting and pretty interesting, that's for sure. And finally, um, I think it was Caroline Glick who wrote this last week. Uh, and I, I was reminded of it when I saw that um, uh, Israelis uh, killed four members of the PA in a raid uh, this week. Um, it, and and there have been a lot of raids, and you and I have discussed uh, the effort to uh, both apprehend actual terrorists who've carried out um, uh, who've carried out um, uh, terror attacks, and and to quell potential terrorism, which is of course the primary goal of Israeli intelligence and the Israeli forces. But she seems to indicate that the reaction of the White House and State Department, Washington in general, to what Israel's doing with these raids and with their activities in Judea and Samaria, that Washington is not supporting them uh, as as much as they used to. Do you think there's a different attitude toward them in Washington? Uh, certainly the, the statements that they made in response to the latest uh, situation and there were three different statements at the UN, at the State Department, I think even one from the White House, um, not from the president himself or the vice president, uh, but the spokespeople, especially uh, the spokesperson for the State Department. Uh, I think that they were overly harsh. I don't understand why, uh, in a battle against terrorism, they feel the need to, to um, give expression to it. We also saw how uh, Secretary Blinken greeted and, and met with the family of uh, Shireen, uh, who was a reporter, clearly not targeted by Israel, and, but and, and whoever killed her, still not completely determined, but right. she was in a, in a conflict zone. 
the the uh, statements that they made, I think, are are um, much harsher than what we have seen in the past, and not reflecting the the reality on the ground that Israel's facing the increased terrorism by the by members of the uh, by these terrorist groups, not, not members of the PA, even though they may be associated with it. They're terrorists, and they should be associated as such. And when they uh, support terrorism and they open fire, live fire against Israelis on a continuing basis, including in the last 24 hours, Israel has to take the steps necessary, just as the United States would. And I think the criticism is very surprising. Yeah, that's for sure. Hope it's not a change of tone there on a permanent basis. Um, all right, so I'm going to take this opportunity, Malcolm, to wish you a Gemar Simatova, happy, healthy, and sweet New Year, and easy fast. Enjoy Israel, of course, and we're going to make a commitment to the listeners to uh, try our hardest, whether you're in Israel or the United States, to get another weekly update on on the 21st of October, which is the Friday following Shmini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. And we, we've educated, I mean, you primarily, obviously, have educated a lot of people in this segment for now over 20 years, started right after 9-11. We should uh, have the ability, please, God, to continue to do this on a weekly basis and uh, watch as people become more educated about these issues week after week. Thank you, and we wish you, first of all, good health and strength okay. and that you continue this amazing service to the, for the Jewish community. And we wish everyone, a good that you should be healthy, and we should have only good news to report. It may be more boring, but I would rather that. <laughs> Amen to that. And again, a big thank you to you and a wonderful Shabbos and Gamar Simatova. Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. With us Fridays, and obviously in the next two weeks we're off, um, we'll have... Um, uh, essentially the, the Erev Sukkot Friday. I know it's not actually Erev Sukkot, but you know what I mean. And then Cholamoid, uh, where we'll be off. But hopefully the 21st of October, no matter where Malcolm is, we'll try to get him on, especially with the Israeli elections at that point, literally being 10 days away. Pretty exciting. Or at least it will be once it starts to build up the excitement in Israel with the upcoming election.